Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Saviour. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. Now over to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these passages of Scripture, I pray that we would know you as the Lord, our righteousness. Holy Spirit, we invite you as you're already here, but that you be here in a special way as uh, I share and we explore this Bible passage. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, good morning. So until Advent, which is just before Christmas, we're considering the names of God in the Old Testament. Is anybody a fan or enjoying... Listens, praise, lecture 365. Anyone here? There's a few of us. I say that, I say that every now and then, don't I? Because I, it would be great if we all did. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> no, it's, I'm sure it's not for everyone. But um, it's, uh, it says an app on your phone. And, and those of us who've been praying along, uh, meditating, uh, they also have been doing um, the names of God over the past two weeks. But we started it. So it's almost as if... <laughs> St. Margaret's Frising Hall is setting the beat. for. <laughs> um, uh, today we're considering the, the name of God, the Lord our righteousness, which first comes in that passage of Jeremiah. And this name, it cuts right to the heart of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that 
Uh, and um, it's a gospel message, really, the Lord, our righteousness. And there's a sense, sharing that message is like preaching to the choir on a Sunday morning. I'm going to share a story about a man who thought he understood what it meant for the Lord to be his righteousness until he realized that he didn't. Um, And that when he did, his life was changed in an extraordinary way and those around him were changed. And indeed, uh, the nation of England and the UK and beyond were impacted. And um, the reason I want to share that story is because there may be some of us here this morning who, like this man, who I'll share his story, we think we've got it, and then actually, no, the story is more lovely, more wonderful. His grace is more powerful than we had previously understood. And uh, this is an opportunity to know God in a new way and in a deeper way. And I want to share the message of the Lord, our righteousness, for everyone else who calls themselves a Christian Uh, but who regularly forgets what it means for the Lord to be our righteousness. And um, this is the case for me, as I shared last week, almost multiple times a day do I need to be reminded of the gospel that God loves me, he likes me, he not only has forgiven me, as wonderful as that would be, but he's justified me. He's dignified me. He's raised me up to reign with him and I'm seated in heavenly places with and in Jesus. Wouldn't it be amazing if all the good news was forgiveness of sin, just a a, a welcome in? But it's more than that. It's this thing of justification, which is at the heart of the Lord, our righteousness, isn't... um, Because if it was just forgiveness, it would be as if we were... Um, walking a tightrope all the time, that God loves you, but as soon as you mess up, uh, then (laughs) you've fallen off the tightrope and um, he's now really angry with you until you manage to climb up through grit and hard work to get back on the tightrope of life. But instead, um, through the cross of Jesus, forever and always, if you're in Jesus, he's declared over you that you're forgiven, your past, present, and future is held safe in him. You're secure, no longer any fear or or what what some um, theologians called assurance, that this, I know that he loves me. I know that I'm held. And even if I fall, as that uh, verse in scripture says, underneath are the everlasting arms in Deuteronomy. He's got me. He's, I'm safe in him. And that's what it means to fully understand the Lord, our righteousness. C.S. Lewis, he he said something like, um, there are some truths that we need to continually be reminded of, and the gospel is one of them, because we forget. We slip back into thinking it's all about us. It's all about me and my behavior and uh, what I do and I don't do. Uh, But the gospel is something different. It is a power that comes to us, something that changes us. And that's what we're being reminded of today in the Lord, our righteousness. So thinking about this, I finished the talk last week mentioning briefly about the man John Wesley, who was a, uh, about 250 years ago, was a preacher, 
you'll know Methodist churches. They're everywhere, aren't they? Methodist churches. Um, some of them are now carpet warehouses, but some of them still um, have Christians in them. Um, and uh, something happened in this country 250 years ago that utterly changed this country and the world. And it's as if the movements of the Holy Spirit and revival and renewal, it's like they ebb and flow throughout history. It's not like one time was the revival to end all revivals. It, it, it's, it's always beautiful as you read history that there's never a point, never a generation where God departs. He's always calling us back to faithfulness, like wooing us back to himself. John Wesley, he was brought up in a Christian home and he received one of the most nurturing Christian upbringings that anyone could receive by one of the greatest saints of the 18th century, Susanna Wesley, his mom. It was said that Susanna would wear a large apron and when she wanted to spend time with God, she'd lift the apron over her head and so her children would know not to disturb her because she was praying or meditating and that she would do this regularly. And John was very pious and at university, while studying to be ordained as an Anglican vicar, he developed a strict code of holiness that, uh, and, he, and invited other people to join him. Every Wednesday and Friday, they would fast completely from food. They would regularly visit the sick and imprisoned and would confess their sin to one another. And at the age of 33, having been ordained in the Church of England for about 10 years, he went to Georgia in America with a desire to convert the first peoples of America to faith in Jesus, what would have been called the American Indian at the time. And his mission trip ended in a horrible failure. He failed to read um, Rules 101 for uh, mission trips. Don't fall in love with the governor's daughter of the province <laughs> in which you're serving. We don't really know what happened, but um, there was some kind of emotional entanglement with the government of Georgia's daughter, and John Wesley fled America under a storm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he fled from America under a storm, and literally into a storm, on his passage back from uh, Georgia back to England during that time a, a, a horrible storm blew up uh, on the Atlantic Ocean and the captain of the ship told the passengers to commend their souls to God and prepare to meet their maker because we were going down um, and on the boat there were some Moravian Christians and um, I spoke earlier very briefly about how God moves in revival. Well, these, these Moravians had experienced a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit in um, what is in now modern-day Germany. Uh, and they'd been utterly changed. And the first missionary movement was born. And they'd gone, they, apparently they prayed for 100 years. <laughs> so generations prayed 24-7 without ceasing. And then at the end of that 100 years, they said to each other, we should do something. <laughs> and so they went out into all the world. And on, um, on this boat were some Moravian Christians worshipping Jesus as the boat was sinking. Fully assured that if they were to die, they knew where they would be in the arms of Jesus and underneath are the everlasting arms. That they, Whatever happened, they were safe because they were in Jesus. And... John Wesley saw them and thought, what they have, I, I do not have. If I was 
to die now. I have no idea what would happen to me. Just wallowing in his sin and brokenness. And uh, it must be quite difficult as a vicar to <laughs> thinking that. And he came back to England writing in his diary, I'm not going to rest until I have what the Moravians have. And he went to go and see people. He went to speak with people, to pray with people. Um, and he began to preach outdoors this message of salvation through the free grace and love found in Jesus, knowing that he didn't have it himself, but in the hope that as he preached, he too may be converted. <laughs> and um, I want to... And then they, uh, uh, there were regular times of prayer in which he, he, would, he would visit everywhere because he, he, he was searching for this assurance that these Moravian Christians had. I want to read an excerpt of um, a prayer meeting that happened uh, a number of years uh, after these things, just to give you a sense of how the Lord was moving during these times. About three in the morning, this was an all-night prayer meeting, as we were continuing in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. I think just as I read that, I have, I've experienced the presence of God in worship, in, you know, in the corporate gathering. And yet, when I read things like that, I think, hmm, I think there's a bit more to come. <laughs> we imagine us, we're praying all night, three in the morning, St. Margaret's Church cries out in a loud voice, because he's here. Anyway, that's a bit far off. Maybe we'll get there. Um, but the night that he found the faith that the Moravians had was at Aldersgate in London uh, at the age of 36. So he'd now been a vicar for something like 15 years. <laughs> um, he recorded this. He'd gone, he'd heard the words of uh, spoken of Martin Luther, a, ref a reformer, someone who experienced a very similar thing to John Wesley, um, very religious, very pious, until realizing that there was something he didn't have, and he went in search of it and found it, the grace of God that changed him, the gospel. He writes this, About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That night, John Wesley fully knew, as if for the first time, what it meant for the Lord to be our righteousness, for the Lord to be his righteousness. You see, John was a very clever, a very disciplined man, but the gospel is not something difficult to understand. Children can understand the good news of Jesus. And often, often 
the wise and the learned of this world is as if they're blinded to it. We use words like, I found God, or I found religion, and it's not entirely wrong. It's good to be searching, just as John was. But there's a sense within the gospel that God finds you. (laughs) As, As you're searching for him, you find out that all this time he was searching for you. Um, there's a great poem called The Hound of Heaven, as if describing Jesus as uh, the one who is in search of you. Who, he, he's, he gets uh, the whiff of you and he's, he's, he's going through this world pursuing you. All this time thinking we were the one pursuing him. The gospel is not a set of principles or doctrines in which we give intellectual assent. It's a power that comes to you, a power that changes you. John Wesley had it all in his head, and yet there was something in his heart and in his very self that he hadn't yet experienced. And this, I believe, is a gift that God freely holds out to all of us. And also, I heard this morning on the lecture 365 prayers, and I think it's so true, Sunday is a day to be born again again. (laughs) <laughs> and so uh, maybe, maybe maybe many of us who thinks, well I, yeah I can remember in my life when that power came to me but maybe today is a day to be born again again <laughs> for that power to come to you again so moving away from the story of John Wesley uh, into this passage of scripture 2 Corinthians 5 I want to read one verse before which Pam read If we are out of our minds, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Out of our minds, as Paul's saying, you you call us out of our minds, crazy for Jesus, uh, Jesus freaks, um, you know that uh, Elton John. Jesus freaks out on the streets, handing tickets out for God. Uh, it's almost like Elton had met these weirdos <laughs> um, who were obsessed with Jesus, a bit unhinged, a bit unbalanced. One of my heroes is the Catholic writer and um, activist Dorothy Day. I just think Dorothy Day is one of the most beautiful people who've ever lived. And she said this, the life of a Christian should make no sense unless God exists. So here's a question to you. If God doesn't exist, and someone's looking from the outside, does your life make sense? Because if you're a Christian, it should make no sense. It should be like, well, he's a weirdo. He's a Jesus freak. <laughs> and out of his mind, out of her mind, um, Martin Luther King, when he was imprisoned in Birmingham jail because they ran out of money to pay the bonds uh, and they didn't know how long he was going to be there in the civil rights um, activism in the uh, early to mid-60s. I can't remember quite when Birmingham jail happened. He was very saddened to read an open letter published in an American newspaper of a number of intellectuals and theologians and church leaders who were basically calling out Martin Luther King for being a Jesus freak, for being uh, a bit too extreme about the issue of racism and civil rights in America and free voting uh, and 
the dignity of being able to sit where you like on a bus. Um, and uh, they accused him of being maladjusted, of saying, look, we're making progress. Don't you think gradualism would be much more peaceful? You know, just... And as Frederick Douglass, another abolitionist, going way back to the time of Abraham Lincoln, he says, power gives up nothing without a struggle. And Martin Luther King knew that. Power gives up nothing without a struggle. There has to be a struggle. Otherwise, the powers of racism aren't going to let anything go. And um, Martin Luther, in his jail cell in Birmingham, wrote this. Uh, I won't do the impression, but I do a good one. <laughs> um, he said, some of y'all have become way too adjusted. And I'm, I'm happy to be maladjusted to this world because I'm a follower of Jesus. And some of y'all have become way too adjusted. And uh, we should be maladjusted to this world if we're followers of Jesus. Um, are you willing to be called a Jesus freak, as Elton John puts it? Um, out of your minds for Jesus. For the love of Christ, the love of Jesus compels us. That's why he says why. This is why we're out of our minds. Because Paul and the followers of Jesus have become lovestruck. They've been turned inside out. There's been a truth that's hit them with such power that they're willing to give their whole lives for it. It's as if as all, all of the energies that a human being has have been channeled down this one <laughs> funnel a life for Jesus. They're going to give it all for him. And it's, it's because they have to. They need to. They've been captured by something so wonderful that uh, they want to. They want to, but they need to. They, the, it, it, use the word compel. They are compelled to go into all the world and preach this amazing news of God forgiving sin and welcoming sinners and counting their sins against them no more. Verse 16, so, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. If you're in Jesus you've been changed. So I said earlier that the gospel isn't a set of principles or doctrines in which you give intellectual assent. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It means that you've been changed. And I think you know, you'll know if you've been changed. I also think that Yes, some people, they can't, they can't put a finger on a time in history when they weren't a Christian. And it's as if, you know, like a dimmer switch on a light, that the light just came on slowly. And yet I think, even if that is your testimony, to some sense that's mine too, I think, you know, when you start turning the dimmer switch, as a click. I think for all, each of us there, if that's your testimony, there will have been a click at some point where you became a new creature, where the old has gone and the new is here. And that doesn't mean that you're the complete ticket now. You're, we are changed and we will continue, continue to be changed until we are like him. Until, this is an amazing thing, that C.S. Lewis is amazing the way he writes um, imaginatively about what it means 
means to be on this adventure. And there's a book, The Great Divorce, incredible book um, about what happens to us when we die, you know, into eternity. And there's a, a, a metaphor in it, and it applies to each of us, that one day we will meet again, as Justin Welby said in that sermon at the, 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 the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. One day we'll meet again, and uh, I'll recognize you, but I'll barely recognize you because you'll have been changed completely. So glorious, so beautiful, such would be your moral strength and um, divine beauty radiating from you. I'll be like, it's Lynn, but look at Lynn. <laughs> um, she's all that God intended her to be. And is, if, we were to, if we were to meet each other as we will be, I think it would frighten us. Because in the same way that when people meet Jesus in the New Testament, in his powerful, ascended, glorious self, they're frightened. Ah, you know, get away from me. Um, and that is how it will be one day when we meet in heaven, in the new creation. We will be changed, but we are changed now. The journey has begun now. Reading uh, verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We implore you, be reconciled. You ever heard that word atonement, like to describe what happens at the cross, atonement? And it literally is three, well, is, is munt a word? I don't think it is. <laughs> it, it, it's an English word um, meaning at one month. That which was divided, put apart, at the cross is put together. There's an atonement, an at one month. Humanity and God are brought together at the cross. God in this is the innocent party. You know, when um, any kind of relationship breakdown, it's never... Sometimes it's not um, half a dozen or, like, what's that phrase? Half a dozen? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Thank you. Um, uh, sometimes it is a bit more unequal, but very rarely is it 12, someone has 12 eggs in their basket and the other person has zero. Um, but in this case, that, that is the case, that um, we are the ones who have... We are the ones who broke our relationship with God through sin. And that's a funny word, isn't it? Like in our English language. When we think of sin, I think most, well, when people in the world think of sin, I think people think of dessert <laughs> or a naughty pudding. Um, but this is what it means. There's many metaphors to try and understand what sin means in the Bible. But I think one of the easiest ways to understand is God is a king. And 
human beings left to their own devices, each of us would think in our heart of hearts, would think it would be better if I were king. It would, you have some rules, God, but it would be better if I make the rules. And actually, I distrust you and your motives. <laughs> and I, I found, and, and I'd prefer to trust my own. Thank you very much. You know, uh, there's this in Isaiah where the prophet sees the king high and lifted up on the throne. His name is Yahweh. I am. I am sits on the throne, the king of heaven and earth and of the universe. And sin, which is the condition of humanity, is to look at the I am who sits on the throne and think, no, I am. I am. I want to call the shots, not you. And it's even to the point of thinking of the I am as a tyrant, as someone who uh, doesn't have our best interests in mind, but as, our, an, an, as, as Jamie said earlier, an angry God. Um, and yet the gospel is, as we said last week, all who come to me, I will never drive away. And that is because of what has happened on the cross, uh, which is held within this last verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that verse there is um, it's like the crux of the the good news of personal salvation that on the cross of Jesus, the sins of the, the reason why it was much more than physical agony is because the sins of the whole world were given, were take, Jesus took it on himself and he died with them. Uh, the, the, the sword of punishment that ought to have fell on each one of us, God in himself took that on himself. And it, it can be hard to understand, you know, the, the father did this to the son, but it's God. God did it, kind of forget that. Jesus is God on the cross. He, he, God takes it on himself. And even, and this is, this is the thing that's crazy. This is why, this is why, Paul goes crazy for Jesus because it's a crazy truth. The reason why Paul becomes a Jesus freak, a weirdo, is because what happens is weird. This is weird. What, what strange love is this? Not, not a human love. That he would take everything on himself and transform it for our good. There's a place in France, you know, on Easter where we say, the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed. Apparently there's a, there's a, a village or town in France where they say to each other, the love of God is folly. The love of God is crazy. <laughs> Look what happened. God came and he died and he took everything on himself in order that we could be changed. This is crazy. This is weird. This is strange. And yet, uh, this, is, and this is why it's hard to give intellectual assent to it because you kind of have to, it has to find you. You have to allow it to find you. So I want to, I want to close um, 
in thinking about the Lord, our righteousness, just with, with a thought experiment, a question. Um, each of us inevitably will, um, there'll, be some, there'll be some things that we really wish we didn't do. And we would have, we've decided, have you ever said to yourself, I'll never do that again? <laughs> sorry, God, I'm sorry. And this is the last time. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing to say because they're usually the things that you do again. Um, and uh, um, when you do that, uh, how do you feel and how do you think God thinks about you in that moment when you find yourself doing the thing that you said you would never do again? There is a sense in that moment of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and that's right. But do you feel, and I'm saying this as a thought experiment, not in any way to condemn you, because I also feel this too. I feel that I I have received the good news of Jesus, changed me, and yet I forget all the time, especially in these moments. (laughs) Um, Do you feel that God loves you any less, that you're any less the beloved, that Uh, the truths that we've talked about somehow don't apply to you as much in this moment. And to know the Lord as your righteousness is to know the sorrow of sin and to repent of it. But it's also in those moments to realize that the love of God is folly, that this is crazy, that he has for all time not only forgiven you, but justified you, dignified you, raised you up to live a life with him, and that even in this moment of fallenness and brokenness, he sees you as lovely and as forgiven. And if you think that's quite offensive, isn't it? Like it's that's quite um, what's the word? It's not fair. It's not fair. And that that is actually the word fair isn't a word that I'd use to describe the gospel. Gospel is profoundly unfair <laughs> because it's all on him <laughs> and not on us. You're like, yeah, but I want to do something. I want to do something to 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 earn it, earn it. Uh, yeah, that that comes after. That comes after when you receive this crazy love and you become a crazy person. <laughs> but you don't need to be a crazy person to receive this crazy love in the first place. That's but that's what happens when the change comes. But it's offensive because we want to earn it, but. He said, I've done it all. I've I've done everything. (laughs) You you come to me, um, and the one who comes to me, I'll never drive away. Uh, So let's, we're going to, if the band could come back up, we're going to worship and then um, be led in our intercessions. But let's stand together. And um, when I said just then, you'll have said, I'm never doing that thing again. (laughs) I think we all would have thought of different things. Um, Do you know this morning that the Lord is our righteousness, your righteousness? Is that something like John Wesley you need to discover for the first time? But it's a bit embarrassing because... (laughs) In John Wesley's case, he spent 15 years as a vicar, <laughs> but now realizing that he needs it. Or is it, as is the case regularly for me, I need to be reminded of this again and again, that it's not on me because it's on him.
He is our righteousness. Uh, Can we stand together and spend just a moment and inviting the Holy Spirit? uh, And um, when I say we're inviting the Holy Spirit, He's already Holy Spirit is God. He's already here. Um, But the truths that we've talked about today, I can explain them with my words and logic. But in the end, it has to come to you, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. He brings this truth to you, and so we're going to invite the Holy Spirit, and before we sing, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd move amongst us now and you'd make these truths real to us, that you'd minister to our hearts, that you'd soften our hearts, that we would know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, the core of who we are, that the Lord is our righteousness, that God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God.